My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Welcome to the first Sunday in Lent, brothers and sisters, as we uh, journey with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ uh, to the cross, and then ultimately through to Easter to his resurrection and then his ascension. I've been thinking a lot about these passages this week. We have three very interesting ones from Genesis, from, first, uh, from Peter's first epistle, and from the gospel according to St. Mark. And I'm going to stick with St. Mark's uh, account for a little bit here, but we'll dip in a little bit to, to all three. And I've been thinking a lot about what happens here with Jesus in this part of the text, baptism and temptation. Or maybe we could also call it baptism and testing. Have you noticed that there's not a lot of info that we have in Mark's account? We don't have a lot of info in this. You know, the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, you know, they, they, they like, they flesh it out a little bit more. They give us more detail. You know, we, we get, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You know, you shall not tempt the Lord thy God, right? We get all of that in Mark. We don't get any of that. It just says, Jesus, when he got baptized, the Spirit descended, the voice, and then it says, the, the, it says the heavens were torn open, which is an interesting, um, interesting verb usage there in Mark when you go back and look at it. Some translations will say the heavens were open, but in Mark, the, the, the Greek, there's actually like to be torn, right? So you have this almost as if heavens are being ripped open and the Spirit is coming down, and then Jesus is, is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, right? It's not sort of like, come on, let's go. It's like, get into the wilderness. It's this Mark and Jesus, Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is always active. He's always on the move. There's all, he's, never, he's never passive. And I, I like to imagine that some of the info in Mark's Gospel is left bare for a reason, not just because some of the other Gospels flesh it out, but I think what it does is when we get this, when we get a little bit of a lack of detail, well, let me get back to that. Just put a pin in there, okay? And if I don't get back to it, then you can uh, confront me in the narthex after the service as you leave and say you didn't get back to that, but we will, I promise. <laughs> so, what happens, he gets baptized and immediately he gets driven into the wilderness, it says in Mark's Gospel, to be tempted for 40 days. Right? So in the other Gospels we get, he gets, he's, he gets like these three temptations. It doesn't really give us like a chronology. Mark basically just says he's in the, he's in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted. Right? So one thing that I think is interesting about that, maybe one of the reasons why the details aren't spelled out in Mark as much is because maybe what Mark's trying to say there is that this is like a never-ending barrage of testing and temptation and trials. I think that that's likely. Because we have this idea in our mind, Jesus got tested those three times in the, in, the, in the wilderness after his baptism, and then after that, he was cool, right? The devil never bothered him again. The demons stayed away from him, right? Nobody tried to do anything to him. No, 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 no. I think that... that it's happening constantly because the wilderness 
is a place of testing. Right? It's not only the place where they believe that you know, evil spirits would like roam around, but it was also the place of testing, hardship. And if we think back and we remember our Old Testament lessons and all the stuff we've heard read in the Old Testament over the years and the things that we learned in Sunday school over the years about how the children of Israel, right, how, how they were freed from captivity to Egypt, right? And then after they are freed from this captivity, Moses comes and he leads them into the wilderness, right? They, they flee from the Egyptians, they cross the Red Sea. We know the story. They're led by Moses into the wilderness. They're led away from Egypt. And what happens? Do they just get a time of testing once or twice? No, they get tested all the time. All the time. All the time. God has marvelously and mightily delivers them from the pursuing Egyptians. And what do they do when they get to the mountain? Moses has been gone a really long time. Like, I've been waiting a whole 10 minutes. Um, I'd like to speak to your manager, please. Right? They all have Karen haircuts. Right? Moses has been gone too long. We need to do something. Aaron. Aaron's like, yeah. And they're like, make us a god like the other nations. And you're like, are you guys serious? What just happened? A giant pillar of fire in front of you at night that blocks off the Egyptian army? A pillar of cloud that leads you in the daytime and also provides like shade from the desert? And now Moses has been gone for 10 minutes and you want now to make an idol and start worshiping it? And then saying, this is your god? And then they have, oh, we, 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 if we can only go back to Egypt when we had fruits and meat. And God's like, you want meat? I'll send you meat. And he sends the quail and they eat and they eat so much. They, they're so unrestrained that a bunch of them overeat and they die. Time after time after time after time, Israel is in the wilderness. And then remember, they finally get to the promised land. The land that God said, I am going to give it to you. This is yours. Remember the promises. All you have to do is go in and take it. And up until this time, God has done nothing but heal them and preserve them and keep them. And then when they get to where he said that they were going to go, they send in the spies. And we know that story too. The spies come back and they say, these people are mighty. We are like grasshoppers in their sights. Like this is, no, we can't do this. And we know the story. Joshua and Caleb were like, no, God said it. We're going to take this land. The other ten spies are like, no, we can't. And this causes this huge division in the camp. And God's like, you know what? Everybody, Joshua and Caleb, you guys are good. Everybody else, we're going to wander the wilderness for 30, uh, 40 years. And you're going to die in the wilderness. And that's what happens. right? They all die. The next generation goes in and receives the promise. And they're in the wilderness for how long? 40 years. How long is Jesus in the wilderness? 40 days. 40 days. So Jesus, his, his activity in the wilderness, his being tested by Satan, which is why we don't really need to know about, about the stones and being taken onto the temple. And I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world if you worship me. Those are all good and we need to learn lots of lessons from that. But what I think Mark is focusing on here is Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 years, or 40 days, recapitulating the 40 years of Israel. Because as Israel fails, 
in the wilderness, what does Jesus do? What does he do? He succeeds. Where Israel falls to testing and to trial, Jesus succeeds. Jesus' activity in the wilderness undoes, recapitulates, undoes the sin of Israel in the wilderness. And what he does is when he, when he undoes this, like just like in the Exodus story, then a generation that will follow him to come will be the ones who will inherit the promises that were given to their forefathers. And this is a major theme we see throughout the New Testament. And one of the reasons why they, the religious leaders get angry with Jesus all the time. But Jesus succeeds where the children of Israel fails. He enters the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he puts to nothing the works of the devil there. And then we have this language of, of in Genesis, right, about Noah. And then we have uh, Peter talks about it in his epistle, right? He, he talks about how baptism saves. And we ask ourselves, well, how does baptism save? Doesn't the Bible say, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your heart the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved? I heard that a lot growing up. I still have that scripture memorized, right? So I heard it a lot in Bible camp when we did sword drills and stuff like that. I'm a true story. There was a church when I was very young we went to. The first time there in Sunday school, they had uh, one of the teachers who would give a quarter for every time you, know, you could remember like a verse in the Bible or knew what he was talking about. And I think like the first, the first Sunday there, I think I left with like $2. I don't know if he ran out of quarters or how many he kept back there, but I got a lot of them right. I was a nerd, a Bible nerd back then. It's a way to get your kids to learn. I don't know. All that's sick. Like, baptism gets put at odds with believing, with your, believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. And oftentimes, you'll hear it's sort of like as, as a, an either or. Like, this verse gets pulled right, where Peter talks about baptism saves, and then some other people pull out this verse, and they'll say, no, baptism doesn't save. Baptism doesn't actually do anything. It's just like a thing you do, because Jesus told us to. And then these other people are like, no, baptism actually does something. Like, baptism has some spiritual power to it. It's not just a symbol. It's just not something that we do just to be obedient. Right? Even though it is something we do to be obedient, there's more to it, right? So this guy, these guys got this Bible verse, and these guys got this Bible verse, and they fight it out on the internet and on YouTube and all that stuff, right? Baptism saves. No, it doesn't. Baptism saves. No, it doesn't. I fall, obviously, right? I fall more on the camp on this side. Baptism saves. Because those two verses aren't at odds with each other. Right? Because when St. Paul writes in Romans 10.9, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That whole part in Romans there, that little section, is part of what was a baptismal formula. As you would step into the waters to be baptized, if you were an adult convert, right, you would confess Christ as Lord as part of undergoing the sacrament of baptism. The two actually work together. And what we've done in Christianity, particularly in Protestantism, is we've taken those two and we've split them apart completely and set them at odds with each other. But we reread the scripture, we see something different. Those two things go together. They're never meant to be ripped apart. And baptism is salvific. 
Because Peter says so. Baptism saves you. And then we ha he references this story in Genesis of Noah and his family. It says eight people were saved through water. And we get a ton of examples in the Old Testament about water and people being saved through water. Children of Israel passed through the Jordan on the way to the Promised Land. They also passed through the Red Sea on the way out of Egypt. Right? Water's a big deal in the Scriptures. And Peter's like, these people were saved in the ark as it went through the water, as judgment and everything was happening all around them. These eight people were saved. These eight people were saved. So then we ask ourselves, well then why does Jesus get baptized at the beginning of Mark? And he gets baptized at the beginning of Mark because, I, well I think St. Gregory Nazianzus said it, best, said it best like this. He says, Jesus comes for the sanctifying of the Jordan. For as he is spirit and flesh, so he consecrates with the spirit and water. In other words, Jesus undergoes baptism in the waters of the Jordan River as an act of of sanctification, right? That the water used to follow for those who are baptized in his name, that that water is something that's consecrated and sanctified, something that once we are washed with it, we are set apart and made holy. And that's what sanctification is, right? When they would use tools and implements in the temple, they would wash it, they would dry it, and then they would set it aside so it wouldn't be contaminated. Baptism does that. It's God's action of, of washing our hearts, of cleansing our hearts, and then making us useful for his service and for his purpose. And that's how baptism is effective. It's not just like Peter says, right? It's not a, a dirt being removed from your body. It's not that. But it's our actual incorporation into the body of Christ. It's our actual entrance into the family of Christ into his people into his people and brothers and sisters this whole thing is like a pattern for us it's like a pattern for us because we find ourselves right in these texts right in these stories of scripture they are they are written as examples for us think of it like this some of us came to faith early in life. Some of us came to faith later in life. Right? And some of us who maybe came to faith later in life, just as like we don't get a lot of detail in Mark's gospel about what Jesus was happening in the wilderness, so I think I filled in the gaps there, I think, okay. We don't know what we're going to encounter in our Christian life. Right? Where Jesus is baptized and the Spirit descends upon him. That's what happens to us in our baptism. Right? When we are baptized, we are saved, we are set apart. The Spirit is given to us, St. Paul will talk about, as a gift. And then we don't just stay there in the waters. We have to go then and live in the world. We have to then ourselves, after the Spirit is given to us, descends upon us, empowers us, we then have to go live and walk in the wilderness ourselves. We have to walk in the wilderness of this world. And Jesus, because he walks in the wilderness of this world as the sinless one, as the one who continually resists temptation and through who being tested continually points to God, that enables us and empowers us as we walk in the wilderness of our life to do the same. 
And I'm focusing a little bit on this because right now we are in Lent. And a lot of times we're going to be asking for prayers for God's mercy and prayers for forgiveness and all that stuff. And we do this not because we, we think that if I don't pray the right prayer, if I don't say it in the right way, if I don't kneel when we pray the great litany, that God's not going to forgive me. No, God loves us. God forgives us. But it's for us. It's to shape our hearts, right? It's to help us. It's to, to look out for these places of testing. Because if we're prepared before we get into the places of testing, when we get into those places of testing, when, we, when they happen to us, we'll be spiritually prepared. And we'll be able to say, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. It is written. <laughs> do not tempt. Do not tempt the Lord. I think this is a beautiful picture of our journey through Lent, Jesus' entry into the wilderness after his baptism to be tested, right? And I think that for some of us, when we wonder, sometimes many people, they wonder, well, am I really a Christian? Did, did, does God really love me? Does God really accept me? Did I, my, my grandfather, my, my grandpa Massa, was a wonderful man, and he resisted right up until before he died, resisted the gospel. And one of the things he used to say, it's too late for me. And he wasn't even that bad of a guy. He's like, I've done too much wrong in my life. It's no use. Right, but the grace of God was able to still break through, even in that situation. And sometimes we feel that way too. We're like, I've done too much. I've sinned too much. I've gone too much in the other direction. Right, I've left the path of life, right? I've turned aside. It's too late for me. And I think Lent is wonderful because it helps us to see and understand that it's never too late. It's never too late for any of us. That God is always there. And if you are a Christian, if you have been incorporated into Christ's body, we can look back on the things like our baptism and say, that's where I entered into the family of God. That's where I was saved. And you can hold on to that. You can hold on to that and gain strength from that. Because the Spirit was given to you at that point. And that can help you as you walk the wilderness of your life. Encountering whatever it is you're going to encounter. Know that Christ is with you. Christ has redeemed you. Christ loves you. And he walks with you. And if you keep holding on to his hand, he will lead you through the valley. And you will not fear any evil, for he will be with you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son. Love the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon podcast for Zion Stone Church. I'm Reverend Mike Lanthman, and I'd like to extend to you an invitation, if you're ever in our area, to please worship with us Sunday mornings at 1015. If you'd like to get a hold of me, or would like some information about the church, or just have some questions, feel free to reach out to us on our Facebook page or via email. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.